The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Your Bibles or your apps, would you open them with me to Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5, and I will also refer to Luke chapter 8 this morning as we continue our series, summer series, Jesus Is. Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8. Father, as we open the word, we have worshiped in song, we have communed around the table, we have been moved to see the work that you've done through these young people in our communities for years now. And Father, we pray that you would open hearts this next week to receive the word of the gospel implanted and that Christ will be lifted up. And now, Father, I pray that you would give us insight into your word as we look at our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Jairus was in an unusual position. He was the type of man where people came to him making requests. He was not used to going to other people requesting things of them. But Jairus was a desperate dad. He he was a desperate dad because his 12-year-old daughter had contracted some type of illness and she was on the verge of death. She was teetering between life or death. Jairus is a man who had it all figured out. He was a man who had all the perks and all the accoutrements of a society at that time. You see, Jairus was the synagogue official in Capernaum, the city where Jesus launched his ministry from. And Jairus was there as the synagogue official, which meant he was the center and the hub of activity. He was in the middle of the center of the hub of activity of Capernaum. As a synagogue official, and the synagogue was the official center of every town and throughout Israel, as one of the synagogue officials there, he would be invited to every banquet. He would be invited to every dinner. The chamber of commerce wanted him at every place he could possibly go. He would be at the head of the religious, uh, the religious side of things. He would be an educator, much like a teacher, a professor in our day and age. His social calendar would be filled months in advance. Jarius had it all. He had all the perks and privileges of his position, but he would trade every bit of that in for his little girl to be well. He was used to people coming to him. He was used to people coming to him and bartering and negotiating, and he could determine what they would receive in turn for what he could give to them. But now in desperation, he was the one who needed help. He was the one who needed something to happen. He was the one who was on the the brink of disaster. He was the one who recognized everything he owned, everything he possessed, everything he had meant absolutely nothing to him at all right now. He recognized in spite of having everything the world had to offer, he had nothing, nothing that could solve his problem. And so he does something that he's not used to doing. He came in desperation. He came begging Jesus for help. In Mark chapter 5, verse 22, it tells us exactly what happened. It says, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up upon seeing him, fell at his feet. It's unusual for a man of that position in any society, much less the Israeli society, to throw himself on the ground, a position of humility, a position of honoring another. And he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. And he entreats him earnestly. The Greek language that the New Testament's written in is very strong here. The word entreat is present over and over and over. It's a present participle. He entreated him over and over and over. He is begging Jesus to give him something that he himself cannot possess. And so he is a desperate dad begging Jesus to do something. He has to ask for something that he cannot give. And that's the health of his daughter. He doesn't barter with Jesus. He doesn't negotiate with Jesus. He doesn't make excuses. He just pleads his case. 
He just screams out in the midst of all that's happening that he needs the Savior. There's no game. There's no game. There's no haggling. There's no bartering. There's no masquerades. The situation is one of desperation. And so he cries out. He could care less with those around, thought about him. Here is the synagogue official throwing himself at the feet of Jesus. Three of the four Gospels include this encounter with Jesus. John does not, so obviously it's a highly significant event in the life of the Savior. It's a desperate situation. I don't know if you've been in desperate situations before. We certainly have in our family. There was a time when I just finished seminary in May of 1981, and we had a few months before we came to Temple, and uh, our son was three months old, and he spiked a fever one night. He was three months old, spiked a fever to 103. Well, we had a toddler who was two at the time, Sarah was two, and that didn't mean a whole bunch to us, but when the fever didn't abate, we decided we'd better call our physician. So about one in the morning, we got a hold of our pediatrician and uh, told him our son had a fever three months old uh, for the last uh, few hours, and he said, you get to the children hospital in Dallas immediately. Long story short, after getting him admitted after having a spinal tap, he was diagnosed with spinal meningitis. Three-month-old baby. We were desperate. We were so desperate, we went and uh, I I began to feed quarters into, uh, what do you call that thing, you know, that you, payphone, and uh, we don't have those anymore. It was like a slot machine, man. I'm throwing quarters in that thing, calling my mom and dad, calling uh, Bev's folks, calling anybody we knew. Hey, would you begin to pray our baby is desperately sick? And to us, spinal meningitis, we didn't know if that was a death sentence. We didn't know what would happen. And they told us there are several complications that can arise from her, including deafness and other things. And so we became desperate, crying out to the Savior. You ever been there? Maybe your teenagers are out and they would do back a couple hours before and you've been texting and you've been calling them and they don't answer and you cry out in desperation. Maybe your spouse has walked in and said, don't love you anymore, never did, and you cry out in desperation. Maybe you're single and want to be married, you finally got engaged and all of a sudden you find the ring being turned back over to you saying, I don't think it's going to work. Maybe you've been longing to be pregnant and finally that pregnancy happens and there's a great celebration in your family, but just a few short weeks later, there's a miscarriage and you're desperate. You're desperate. The prodigal doesn't come home. The addiction returns. The battle continues. There's more month than there is money. The credit card bill comes in. You've blown it again and you've got to tell your spouse about it and you become desperate. I became desperate uh, a couple of Sundays ago. I've been on this diet, this diet that I'm on. A bunch of our folks here have lost a bunch of weight. And so I've been on this diet, uh, 22 down, 26 to go, not quite halfway. So we're working on it. But uh, two Sundays ago, my mom was in the hospital and she's getting better by God's grace. And, and I'm sitting, uh, I shared this with the uh, Thursday morning men this past week. Uh, I'm sitting on the sofa watching a ball game. And uh, I mean, I've had uh, for, for three, for, for four weeks, all I ate was diet shakes and, uh, or uh, bar shakes and one meal a day. And uh, you hear me talk about Bluebell ice cream a lot, but if you really knew me, you knew my biggest vice is salty stuff. I love salty stuff. And so I'm sitting on my couch watching this ball game, and I, I'm just, I am so tempted. There are all kinds of things in the pantry screaming my name, just screaming my name. And so finally I gave in. I went to the pantry, and I looked up there and said, if you can have any, if you're going to get off the wagon, fall off the wagon, run off the wagon, jump off the wagon... What are you going to do? And I said, I've got to have chips. I haven't had a chip in over a month. I've got to have chips. And so normally I would take a bag of chips, take it to the couch, and just mindlessly eat 
most of a bag of chips. And so I decided I can't do that. I've worked too hard to get to where I am. So I went and got a little bowl. I found a bag of Cheetos, stuffed my hand in there, put a bunch in the bowl. And I went there and savored every single one of them. And when I got to the end, I thought that's not enough. And I remembered seeing a bag of kettle fried potato chips. There's nothing like a kettle fried potato chip. So fresh bag, there are all kinds of fresh bags up there because I'm the only one that eats the stuff and I've been dieting. And so I opened that bag up and instead of taking it to the couch, I got a handful, put in a bowl, went and sat down and ate one at a time. I could eat just one at a time. And so I said, okay, I'm off the wagon now. What do I really want? (laughs) It's just an appetizer. And so I decided, you know, What I haven't had, I've not had a single Ritz cracker, and I haven't had a slice of cheese in a month, and I haven't had, so I I counted out 10 Ritz crackers. I am desperate. 10 Ritz crackers, and I went and got a slice of cheese, cut it up into five pieces, because I decided if I'm going to do this, I also want peanut butter and honey on those other five crackers. And so I sat there and I savored every one of those peanut butter crackers and every one of those cheese crackers. And, uh, and then I decided, okay, I am really off the wagon. The wagon is out the door. The wagon is running down the street to my neighbors who's on that same diet. And so I decided, okay, I've got to do one. I've got to have dessert. I haven't had a dessert in a month. And so I started scrounging around. There's not a whole bunch there. And I'm thinking, man, they've wiped us out. We had a bunch of folks in a few weeks before, one of the groups that I'm mentoring. And, and I remember, well, we had a little ice cream left over when Bluebell was 1905 HEB or something like that. And I thought, that's not bad, but that, it's just vanilla. And if I'm really good off the wagon, what am I do? So I went scrounging around and I found some Halloween candy. This was last, this was last week. And you, you know, they make these little bite-sized bars, these little bite-sized bars, just little bite-sized. And I found uh, two Milky Ways and two Snickers. And so I cut those in half. That gave me eight pieces of candy, which seemed a whole lot more than four pieces of candy. So I put them in the bottom of the bowl and then I figured out it's time for the ice cream. And so I put that on top of there, mixed it all up and savored every single bite. I got on the scale the next morning. I lost one pound, actually. (laughs) So that's my new diet now. I said, wonderful diet. I'm just telling you, I was desperate. And I failed miserably. Rather than turning to where I could have in the midst of that, turning to the one I should have in the midst of that, I sought comfort in something else. Have you ever been there? You know, when something goes wrong and the train comes off the tracks and the wheels come off the wagon and temptation settles in and we begin the struggle, where do we turn during those desperate times? Is it to food like I do, maybe a bottle, maybe a pill, maybe smoking some pot, maybe you go to the gym, or do you turn to Jesus? I I like what one author says about desperation. Desperate's a strong word. That's why I like it. People who are desperate are rude, frantic, and reckless. Desperate people are explosive, focused, uncompromising, the desire to get what they want. Someone who is desperate will crash through the veil of niceness. In the New Testament, it's filled with desperate people, people who barge into private dinners, scream at Jesus till they get his attention, destroy the roof of someone else's house to get in. People who are desperate for spirituality very seldom worry about the mess that they create when they want to make their way to Jesus. You ever been desperate? (laughs) Desperate for Jesus? You see, it's real easy to be desperate for a lot of other things. 
But if you're desperate for the Savior, you will knock, you, you will, you will knock down walls. You will barge into places you shouldn't be. You will scream when you, when, when you need to get his attention, and you'll even destroy somebody's roof. Jarius is a synagogue official. He's respected by all. He falls at the feet of Jesus because he is desperately in need of help. What about you? What about you? See, what, what I recognize is this, that uh, for us, we need to be desperate. Desperate people pray. They pray without thinking about it. They pray even if they're not sure who they're praying to or if they're praying to any, if there's anyone listening to them. People in foxholes pray. People who go through divorce. People have children that run away. People hear from a doctor that the growth is malignant. When we reach the limit of our resources, we pray instinctively and reflexively like a person who can't breathe, gasping for oxygen in the way that a man who's falling reaches for something to grab. Note well when Ortberg writes that when we reach the limit of our resources, that's too bad. Because Jesus should not be the last resort. He should be the first resort. Desperate people. You know, I tell that story humorously of me succumbing to the battle of chips. But the reality of, in desperation, who do you turn to? Where do you run to? Who do you look for? Where do you go? Jarius is desperate. He has a 12-year-old daughter who's dying. And he needs help. And only Jesus can deliver that help, and he knows it. And so the amazing thing about this, if you look at Mark chapter 5, it says, he entreated him earnestly, my daughter's at the, my little daughter's at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may live. And look at what happens in verse 24. Jesus went off with him. And Jesus, Jesus said, okay, I'm coming. And a great multitude was following along with him. And so Jesus says, okay, I'm coming. I know your daughter is deathly ill. We'll do something about it. He's gone to the right person at the right time for the right thing. He's desperately desiring for Jesus to save his daughter. He is a desperate dad. Imagine your son or daughter is dying. You call 911. The paramedics show up. They put him back to the ambulance at son or daughter, and you're headed to the ER. But all of a sudden they say, hey, wait a minute. I got to take care of something. What would you think? That's what happens here. Jesus is on his way. There's a little girl who's dying. Jesus is on his way. He is 911. He's the paramedic. He's gone to help her. He is the one who can give her life. He's the one who can keep this disease from destroying her body. But on the way, something happens and Jesus stops. Now imagine that. You're, you're on your way. You're in back of the ambulance. You're headed to the children's hospital with your dying son or daughter. And the ambulance driver says, wait a minute, I got to do something. And what happened here is quite interesting. What happens is while Jesus is walking along, there's this huge crowd, they're pressing into him, and somebody touches him. Now imagine a lot of people touched him. But this someone was someone else. It was an outcast woman. By the way, on desperation, when desperation sets in, humble yourself and call upon the one who can answer your pleas. When desperation sets in, turn to the one who can answer your pleas. Not to dish of ice cream or a bag of chips or to the next pill or the next drink, to the next hookup, to the next porn site. Go to the one who can answer those dreams, to the Savior, those desires. So when Jesus is on his way, somebody reaches out and touches him, and it's a woman who's an outcast. This woman, uh, this little girl was 12 years old. This woman had been bleeding for 12 years. She has a bleeding uterus. It can't be stopped. And for 12 years, she has been orphaned. She's been ostracized and she's been an outcast. For 12 years, she's been outside of the synagogue. For 12 years, she can't go to the temple. For 12 years, she cannot go and formally worship her God. For 12 years, the Levitical prohibition is she can't even touch anyone. 
For 12 years, she's been in pain. Ladies, you can imagine a 12-year menstrual cycle, 12 years of bleeding, and that's what's happening here. In the midst of all her pain, she's an outcast from society. Because of this particular problem she had when they would hear about her bleeding, they would cluck their tongues and say, well, obviously we know what she did to get that. She's an outcast. She's an orphan from society. She can't touch anyone. She has to remain apart from her family, apart from friends, apart from anywhere. She's ostracized. She would walk down the streets and the shadows and the alleyways down the sidewalks with her head buried in shame, not wanting to make eye contact with anyone. She's orphaned by society. She's outcast from those around her. She's ostracized even from her God in her mind. She has nowhere to go, no one to turn to. But then she hears about someone else. She hears about Jesus. She turns to the one who can do something. A few months ago, I shared with you the story of Joseph Scriven. Joseph Scriven lived back in the 1800s. He was engaged to a young lady and the night before their wedding, she and her wedding entourage, the girls on her wedding party, went swimming one of the lakes in Pennsylvania. She went down, the fiancé went down and never emerged from the water and drowned the night before their wedding. Scriven was heartbroken. Within six months, his beloved mother passed away back in his home country of Ireland or Scotland. About three years went on, he met another young lady and they were engaged to be married and about two months before their wedding, she contracted pneumonia. And two months before this wedding, she passed away. Heartbroken, desperate. He sat at his desk crying out to God and he wrote these words. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. He continued writing and he wrote these words. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge, take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? This outcast woman didn't have friends anymore. She was orphaned. She was ostracized. She was an outcast. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee, take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou will find a solace there. So this woman who has not been able to touch anyone or been touched by anyone hears about a miracle worker who touches people. She hears about Jesus and her faith deepens. And she recognizes some way, somehow, she could get next to the Savior. She could be healed. And she's like, like a piece of thread that just thread through the eye, slivers into the eye of a needle. She begins to sliver her way through the crowd because she knows if she's recognized, she will never get close to the Savior. Her faith is so strong. In fact, if you look at Mark in verse 28, she says, she thought to herself, if I could just touch his garments, I know I would be well. If I can just somehow come next to, next to her, I know I'll be well. Next to him, I know I'll be well. And so she snakes her way through the crowd like that thread gone through the eye of a needle. And she makes her way close to Jesus. And she can't go face to face. She can't touch him. She can't grab him. She'll be recognized. But her faith is strong. And she reaches up and she touches the garment of the Savior. And Jesus stops. And when Jesus stops, 
He says, who touched me? And it's quite interesting at that point in time, Luke fills in some of the blanks that Mark doesn't. Luke tells us specifically who responded. Jesus says, who touched me? And of course, who's going to speak up at that point in time among all the disciples? Peter. So in Luke chapter 8, verse 45, Peter says, Master, the multitudes are crowding and pressing upon us. I mean, Master, how can we possibly know out of all these people who you're talking about? So Peter once again steps up and gives the wrong answer. And Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? Someone touched me. I'm aware power has gone out from me. You see, Jesus was stopped in his tracks, not because he was grabbed by the woman with power, but because he was grabbed by the faith of the woman. And Jesus stops and says, hey, I got to know who touched me. Power has emanated from me. Something's happened here. And the woman, hearing that Jesus was calling for her, steps up and tells him what happened. And then Jesus does an amazing thing. He loved the compassion of our Savior. Look at verse 48 in Luke chapter 8. He said to her, daughter, stop right there. Daughter. A term of love and a term of endearment. When's the last time someone had spoken kindly to her? When's the last time anybody would call her with a term of affection? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Hey, you're mine. Hey, you're my little girl. You're my daughter. So go in peace. Some of you read that and say, you know, Gary, I've got a problem with that story. I mean, I have prayed believing, I have prayed in faith, I believe I've got at least the faith of a mustard seed that Jesus said I need to have. I prayed for healing, but I'm still sick. I prayed for my marriage to be healed, but she left anyway. I prayed for my prodigal son or daughter over and over, I bombard heaven with it, but they're still wayward. I prayed for a godly mate, I'm still single. I prayed for a child, my arms are still empty. I prayed to overcome an addiction, but I still fall. I prayed to give up a habit, but it's still there. Gary, is God really good? Can I really trust him? That's what you're asking. My friends, I can tell you this. You may never be healed. The prodigal may never come home. You may battle that addiction till you go to the grave. But in the midst of that, God is good. He's present. He cares for you. And he loves you. He's a compassionate God. Jesus is a compassionate Savior. This woman is an outcast. And here's what I can tell you about healing and getting the desire of your heart. Faith does not guarantee that we get whatever we want. But faith aligns us, our heart to God's heart. You know, guys, when I point one finger out there, I've got three pointing right back at me. I have a disease that has no remission and has no cure. No remission, no cure. There are days when I'm desperate. There are days all I can do is cry out into God and say, God, I don't know. Am I healed? You're going to keep me here for a while or you're going to take me to you? I, I don't know that. I don't know. There are days when I bombard heaven. There are days, quite frankly, when I don't. But I know this. In the midst of this, he's still good.
Remember what Job's wife told Job? Job's wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? This after he lost everything, including his family. You still hold your integrity? Curse God and die. If you guys remember, I preached a sermon on that, when not to listen to your wife. Okay. Curse God and die. But Job said to her, you speak as a foolish woman. I also, in that message, said, don't call your wife a fool, even if she's a fool. Shall we indeed accept only good from God, not adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Sometimes God heals, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes the marriage is repaired, sometimes it's not. So, sometimes... The prodigal returns, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes the addiction is taken away, sometimes it's not. Paul prayed three times, God, remove this thorn, remove this thorn, remove this thorn. And what did God tell him? My, what? Grace is sufficient. Paul, just trust me. Just trust me. Job said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Even if he slays me, I'm going to hope in him. Habakkuk put it this way, my favorite passage in the Old Testament, though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit in the vines, the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no fruit. Though the flock should be cut off from the field, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Here's what I would say. In the midst of the battle, recognize, recognize faith does not guarantee that we get what we want. But what faith does is align our heart with the heart of the Savior. Well, if you remember, Jesus stops because this outcast, ostracized, orphan woman touches him and is healed, but he's on his way to help a little girl. Tragic news comes to Jairus. Your daughter's dead. Your daughter's died. She's not alive anymore. In fact, Matthew says the flute players, the mourners, are already at the house playing the flutes of mourning. She's not alive anymore. And Jesus says in Luke's gospel, do not be afraid, verse 50, only believe and she'll be well. So he came to the house and didn't allow anyone to enter with him except Peter, James, and John and the girl's father and mother. Somehow I got fixated on verse 51. I'm thinking, why do Peter, James, and John get to enjoy all this action? I mean, really, I'm thinking, I'm Bartholomew. I'm one of the other disciples. Like, what about us? What, don't we get to go in here? It's like being in a Sandlot baseball game and, the, and you get two captains and they do the bat back and forth and then they start picking the kids on each team and you're the last kid standing and you don't get to go where you want to be. I mean, it's like, what about us, Lord? Don't we get to see some of this sometimes? But I, I, disciples are better men than I am, I guess. I don't question them. And Peter, James, and John go in there. An amazing thing happens. They were all weeping and lamenting for her. Jesus said, stop weeping. weeping. She's not died. She's asleep. The scriptures tell us, and it's recorded in all three of the gospels, she's dead. What does Jesus mean while she's asleep? Well, sleep and death are the same to Jesus. It's just two different spheres. If it's on earth or if it's in heaven, it doesn't matter to Jesus. It's just two different places. So they begin laughing at him knowing she had died. This is a physician writing the book, by the way. Luke is a doctor. Everybody knew she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and said, child, arise. And once again, if you write in your Bibles, I've circled the word daughter when he called the, the woman with the issue of blood. And now he uses a different word for child. It's actually a, a word that's a diminutive. It, it's, a, it's a word of endearment. He says, tell her, arise. He doesn't say be resurrected. He just says, you're asleep. And he takes her hand and he moves her from one sphere to the next sphere as though it's nothing. 
And I love what he does next. Her spirit returned and she immediately arose. And I've underlined the last uh, verse 55 of my Bible. He gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. (laughs) Jesus said, she's alive, feed her. I mean, go get some food, not bars and shakes. Go get some chips and (laughs) feed the girl. She's alive now. Don't you just love that? I mean, Jesus says she's alive. Get her something to eat. And her parents were amazed. And he said, don't tell anybody. What in the world's happening here? What's happening here? Well, here's, here's, here's some things that are happening. First of all, Jesus is showing there's no difference in him between life and death. Jesus conquers death as though it's nothing. We fear death. We, we mourn death. We struggle with death. We want to avoid death. We dress people up and we put them in caskets in here and say, how good they look. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? They look like themselves. I hope I never looked like that before. And we want to sanitize it and make it nice. To Jesus, death and life are both like he can conquer all of it. Secondly, this is about the clean and unclean. You see, the episode prior to this, before meeting Jairus, he came from the other side. You know where he was before? He was in Decapolis. And you remember what happened in Decapolis? They hit the seashore. This guy loaded with demons is there. He's in a cemetery. Christ cast the demons into a bunch of pigs. They go running off the cliff. We talked about this last week, that the place was unclean. The pigs were unclean. The man was unclean, filled with demons. And Jesus says, you're clean. And then Jesus walks in, and a woman who was totally unclean with an issue of blood for 12 years, she touched to Jesus, she becomes clean, and Jesus t- comes to a dead girl, touches her, she's unclean. You see, with Jesus, even that which is unclean becomes clean. Because the exact opposite happens. The book of Haggai, read it sometimes, when unclean touches that which is clean, it becomes contaminated. If we had a glass or a pitcher of regular water here, and we had a bunch of sewer water, and we poured that sewer water into that pitcher of regular water, it would be contaminated. That which is unclean does not make clean, clean. It makes it contaminated and unclean. But when Jesus comes, because he is the God of the universe, because he is the one who sees all, knows all, does all, is all-powerful, when the when he who is clean touches that which is unclean, everything becomes clean. And so when Jesus touches your dirty, rotten heart filled with sin, we become clean. And he says, you become a new creature in Christ. Old things pass away, new things come. And so when Jesus touches that which is unclean, it all becomes clean. And when Jesus sees people on the outside... He brings them to the inside because he has the power to do it. And these outcasts become those who are on the inside. Demoniacs become missionaries. Outcast women are healed and little girls are resurrected. If there's anything, the the eyes of disciples had to be this wide. If there's anything these series of miracles teach us, it's about the compassion of Jesus. Jesus is compassionate. So whatever you're struggling with this morning, whatever that might be, there's a compassionate Savior who loves you. I told you, Todd, would you join me at the end of every service you're going to hear from a tbc or this summer? Jesus is going to talk about how Jesus demonstrated compassion to him. Would you uh, welcome my dear friend, Todd Vincent, to the stage. Bless you, my brother.
a, a desperate man, a desperate man sent a text to me on Friday, said, you hear this Sunday, been holding off on asking someone to give their story at the end, being, being led uh, to you if available. Yes, I'm here. How much detail? Then he called me and we had a discussion. Um, and so I'm really excited to share my testimony. And then when people think about testimonies, it's always this big a day, this, this big event. And that may be true, but I just want to tell you that I had to ask him how much detail because my life is a testimony. And what part of it do you want to hear about? Because as he was telling me the passage of Scripture he was going to be talking about, I thought he was thinking of me because at one point he sat in the, ho- uh, the hospital room with me as I had a blood clot in my liver and my mesenteric vein, and more than likely in the morning I was probably going to either lose my intestines, be dead, or by God's miracle be alive while I'm standing here. And so he did show compassion on me, for sure. But there is a date that I want to tell you about, and um, the intro to that date, I'm going to read to you a verse from a song that that summarized the prayer that I prayed as I was on the floor of Promise Keepers, August 17th, 2002, on my first trip from this church. And here's what basically I said, take me as you find me. With all my fears and failures, fill my life again. I give my life to follow everything I believe in, and now I surrender. And the reason I say that is because um, I was a, I am a Yankee from Pennsylvania, and my Dad is the son of a, an American Baptist, very conservative American Baptist preacher. My mother is the daughter of a Catholic. And that, divorce, that marriage didn't work, ended in divorce, and that hurt. But God still showed compassion on me because um, that caused a bunch of financial hardship for me then in college, and that hurt. But he still showed compassion on me because that forced me to actually go in the military and get stationed at Fort Hood, Texas, which brought me here. And on the way, I met this girl who I was deeply in love with, I thought, and we were engaged, and she ended it two weeks after I was baptized because I converted to Catholicism for her. But he showed me compassion because he finally led me to my wife, which brought me to this church. And the reason I want to share with you a little bit about all of that in that prayer is because as we started going to this church, um, things were going well for us. Married, just had our second child, boy and girl, had a great career, nice house, nice neighborhood. We're involved in Sunday school class, we're in small groups, we're being discipled. I had a mentor, and I'm seeing some of the folks that we were with. I had a mentor that he said, you know, God can't, you got to memorize a verse. And so I had one, James 1.22, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Good for a performance-oriented person. Second thing he said, God can't use you until he breaks you down to build you back up, to be the man you want to be. And I thought, I haven't been broken. And all those things I mentioned earlier where Jesus did show compassion on me, maybe not at the time, they didn't break me because I'm too strong and I'm not a quitter. At least that's what I thought. And so I'd pray. And, and the thing that bothered me the most is I do all this study. I was smart enough to read the Bible and understand and know that Jesus died for my sins. In fact, I made a public profession of faith at age 16 in a church. But as I read Hebrews 4, And it said, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. I thought, it's not alive to me. Why is it not alive? And I'd pray, Lord, what's it going to be to break me because I want to be your disciple? And he said, you're holding the keys. And guess what the keys were? Unconfessed sin. 
secret sin that I had buried deep and years had gone by, but nobody knew. And if I just died with it, it would probably be okay. But if, I, if it came out, then I would have to deal with a lot of catastrophe. I prayed that prayer at Promise Keepers on August 17th because August 18th, I had to come here and put a presentation on for my little small group on Luke 14, chapter 14, verse 24, starting there. And Gary preached on it two weeks ago. And it's the one where in this passage, there's three um, verses that mention what it takes to be a disciple. Specifically, it says, you're not my disciple if. The first one, if you don't give hate, your father, mother, wife, children, your own life. You cannot be my disciple. If you will not pick up your cross, follow me, give yourself away, you cannot be my disciple. At the end of the passage, I think it's 33, where it says, if you do not give up everything you own, you cannot be my disciple. So my sin was going to take away my marriage, my family, my church fellowship, and my job. And I was carrying it. And I wanted to be a doer of the word, and I wanted to be a disciple. And I got to that floor, and I said, I'm surrendering it all to you, whatever it takes. I came home that night, and I dealt with that sin. And guess what? My marriage changed immediately. Unbelievable. My family, we end up having a third child, and now there's lots of excitement in our house. And it's great. Church fellowship, we started... Men's ministry, we started doing Bible studies in our home on marriages, and Men of Steel was with birth those years ago. God called me to seminary. I didn't want to go to seminary, but I said, well, I need to go because I don't know if I'm sinning, and I thought, I'm going to have to give up my career. For six years, I went to school three days a week. I worked two, and he never took my business away, my anything, any aspect of it, so he did show compassion all the way, but most importantly... The day after I confessed a new verse, the first time I looked at the Bible, the pages jumped off at me, and it was Psalm 37, 4 and 5. It says, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Trust also in Him, and He will do it, not me. Truth is, God is compassionate. There's lots of stories I could tell you of compassion. That verse that I shared with you, or that, that stands from that song, is a song we sing here a lot. And I want to now share with you the first words, uh, the first couple verses of that song that it's been one of my favorite. Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. 